0: Doctor's Kitchen,
1: recipes, health, lifestyle.
0: As I went to leave the flat, I just went, this is an act of self-harm, take your shoes off. And I went and sat down with a cup of tea and just thought, right, this is this is how tenacious and nefarious this illness is, because you have one sign of weakness and it's in.
1: Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best Today I have a very honest conversation about eating disorders, negativity bias, and the brain with Emma Guns and Katie Wariner. Katie is one of the UK's leading performance psychologists working behind the scenes and on the big stage with some of the world's best athletes, leaders, and organizations. From the sports field to the boardroom, the helicopter pad to the operating theater, Katie helps people train the mindset skills and practices essential to thriving under pressure. She's been embedded in Olympic sports for the last decade, supporting many of our most successful athletes at both the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympic Games. But she was also a professional athlete Herself, who had to overcome the issues surrounding food being used solely as a tool for performance, and how that was ingrained into her as an impressionable teenager chasing Olympic ambitions. Emma Ganavardana is better known by her media name Emma Guns and is an award-winning journalist and podcaster who I describe as UK's answer to Joe Rogan. The Emma Gunn Show covers topics including beauty, wellness, mental health, eating disorders, business, entrepreneurship, and finance. And she prides herself on covering a variety of topics in a way that will be relevant and meaningful to her global audience. And today, I wanted her to share her relationship with food and her personal experience of self-confidence and diet. Both of my guests are pragmatic thinkers as well as passionate advocates for supporting people to develop the mindset that they need to thrive. But I do want to exercise caution with today's show for anyone uncomfortable listening to stories around binge eating disorders, guilt, body dysmorphia, and depression. Today, you're going to hear about self-compassion and how our brains work. Katie's experience of negative self-image and body dysmorphia. How food can be naively perceived as a means to achieve something or equally to fill a void. Connections as the antidote to shame and why guilt is a natural and healthy emotion. Yes, you heard that correctly. Why guilt is something that we need to embrace in an appropriate way and how we can use negativity as a foundation for change in addition katie runs online courses for athletes who want to train their mental game as well as for some who want to invest in their mental well-being and listeners can get a discount to either of those courses by checking out the details at the doctorskitchen.com. for now enjoy the podcast So thank you both so much for making the time this Friday morning to chat with me on the podcast. I love you both. Um, Emma, you're a prolific podcaster. I described you as the female version of Joe Rogan in the UK, uh, which I think is brilliant. And um, Katie, Katie, we were on a webinar um, a couple of months ago uh, all to do with uh, mental health and um, specifically for healthcare practitioners. I'd love to start with... um, your journey and your story, uh, Katie, and, and what you do, and introduce uh, you to the, to the listeners.
2: Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation and the lack of structure <laughs> to see where we go. <laughs> it's a good job. I sense all three of us like to go with the flow. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess the story kind of starts. Well, I was when I was younger as an artistic gymnast. Um, I was really, really passionate um, about the sport. I just there was nothing more I wanted to do with my life than do backflips and somersaults and train. And that sort of pursuit of perfection, you know, kind of a tumble well landed under pressure <laughs> it was for one reason or another was, was just absolutely what I was passionate about. Um, However, I, I I mean, I trained, like, by the age of about 12, I was training about 30 hours a week. I wasn't going to school. I was sort of exempted from school for various um, training sessions and so on. And over the years, my sort of love of the sport got got sort of distorted because I had a really, really difficult relationship with a, a gymnastics coach that I worked with. Um, I developed some, yeah, some really difficult sort of thoughts and feelings about myself, about about my body image and all sorts of things. And ultimately, my love of the sport just, just sort of... Um, yeah, it changed a lot. And I ended up at 15 or 16, I actually finished having represented the country, travelled the world and, and, you know, to, had a, had what in many ways was an amazing career, but not, not what I dreamt of. And I decided, I don't remember saying this, but my mum always tells me that at 16, I turned around and said, I, I want to be there for others in the way that no one was for me. I want to help other athletes connect better with their coach, have a better chance of being understood and following their dreams. Um, and and I, back then, I guess I didn't really know that was a role you know sort of that brilliant naivety of when we're younger so I went on to study psychology initially I suppose because I was interested in how much our brains can be developed how much our our ways of thinking and feeling about ourselves you know is that fixed am I just born tough or can I work on my toughness can I work on my confidence Um, and the the field of psychology is just I'm so grateful for it because I've just absolutely loved learning about that and now I'm sort of 15 years into a, a really really fortunate career working primarily within Olympic sports so within Team GB and helping athletes and coaches to make the most of their sporting passions and talents um, and I also work alongside um, a couple of really good colleagues in a few different sort of passion ventures in schools so helping schools change the way they um, develop a self-esteem within young people and resilience um, so so yeah really really varied um, but primarily any anyone with a dream I'm well up for helping.
0: <laughs>
1: That's amazing <laughs> there's so many elements of your story I really want to unpick that I don't know where to start I mean I I guess it never fails to amaze me how many times I have someone on the podcast who is doing some incredible feats whether it be in something clinical whether it be something outside who's had a powerful personal story that has fueled their desire and fueled their passion Uh, and, and I wonder you know when you were 16 you felt unsupported What things are you doing now? How has your personal experience helped you create a structure or a framework or a cushion for people who are in the same sort of high performance pursuit as you were
2: good question and it's i i'm still on a journey with it myself so if you were to interview some of the athletes i've worked with over the years a lot of them wouldn't actually know anything about my story or wouldn't even know that i used to be an artistic gymnast myself over the last few years i think as you get more and more comfortable in your skin i've i've noticed that i'm more comfortable talking about it and even like talking with you guys today is like it's quite a privilege actually um I used to think that um oh I really wanted to go to the Olympic games win an Olympic gold medal and then use the story and use what I'd learned to help other people achieve their dreams. I used to think that was the way to do it. Um over the course of my career and with some you know fantastic mentors Pippa Grange, Steve Peters, various people that have, have supported me, I've come to actually learn that the suffering I had is probably at the heart of of why I'm able to to hopefully make a difference to athletes coaches and you know, leaders, teachers today, because I, I I understand what it's like to lose a dream. I understand what it's like to feel that kind of pain and that sort of sense of loss and that that sort of misunderstanding. And I am so so motivated now to help other people not not have that, but to grow through their experiences to you know to feel supported. So I think initially, just intuitively, because I'm genuinely you know like we all are, we're following our passions and being true to to ourselves and. And sort of trying to not not build a life based on a CV, but based on, you know, the eulogy metaphor of who do you really want to be and and what do you want to do with this one precious life? And so I think that that just organically, I hope, comes through and I'm kind of, I guess I'm in it for the right reasons for, for me personally. But I have over the last few years been able to share a little bit more. And I think I think that that just adds authenticity to it. But I'm still figuring it out. It's a good question. I'm still figuring it
1: out. Yeah, I mean, it's a privilege for you to even want to share your story. I think on a podcast that demonstrates that, you know, that maybe not the comfortability of, of being vulnerable, but certainly your authentic self. And I know this is probably really hard for Emma to not jump in with questions there because you are a podcaster. And I'm sure you're thinking of like, oh, I'd love to ask about this. So I'm going to ask you to talk about you for once, actually, because I know I've listened to so so many of your pods. Um, you're an amazing uh, hostess. You're an, an amazing person who, who has you know, some really poignant questions. But I want to turn the lens on, on you and, and allow you to tell your story.
0: Thank you. Um, so I, it's so interesting listening to Katie's story, actually, because I've made notes instead of uh, butting in. So things that you mentioned, mentors, failure, confidence, self-esteem, suffering. And I I wrote those down because they are things that I think I can relate to and I think a lot of people can prob- probably relate to. And I think I started out as a journalist in beauty or writer in beauty and wanted to work on magazines because I thought it was incredibly glamorous. And so that was my dream In the way that I guess going to the Olympics was your dream. And I somehow managed to get there. I mean, there was a lot of luck involved, but there was also an awful lot of graft, but It wasn't necessarily the dream that I thought it was going to be. And I really uh, struggled with that. I really struggled with the fact that I thought that this was going to be this glamorous life. But in addition, I think I realised that I didn't have any self-esteem. I didn't have any self-confidence. So I wanted to become the beauty editor of a magazine because I thought, well, if that's my identity, then people will like me. I will be valid. That will give me the thing that will mean that I will be able to walk into a room and not feel anxious and not feel that... I'm the worst person in the room and so I aspired and tried really really hard just to get that label just to have that identity and then like when I got there it was like and now what it was so that was really uh, a bit of a struggle and that's I guess the Mm -hmm. thing that has really informed the podcast insofar as I can't be alone in having all these self-destructive self-sabotaging thoughts and feelings and it's so easy to project onto other people around you that they're absolutely winning at life and they've got everything sorted and they know how everything runs and they walk into room and they feel great everybody has gone through something everybody has had their failure everybody has had their issues with self-esteem and I think that's it's really helpful to share those stories and so that I guess is the basis of why the podcast was born because the really good stuff the really good stories And the real growth comes from your own failure, but also understanding other people's. And there's a great RuPaul quote, which is the part of the the place on the bone that was broken becomes the strongest part in the bone. And i love that because i just i like the idea of thinking that actually your failures do make you stronger and i do believe that they do i need to write that down as well
1: (laughs) i know i'm literally writing that down i'll send you a meme
0: quote
1: (laughs) 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 yeah of course and uh, you know obviously the the doctor's kitchen podcast focuses on nutrition and and diet as well as all the other aspects of 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 lifestyle medicine Um, and obviously, we want to go into the other wider determinants of what makes people ultimately happy as well as successful, uh, whatever their definition of success is. And and for, for you, Katie, you know, one of the things in, in terms of how you described it as the pursuit of perfection would have been diet uh, and and the restriction that is almost necessary when it comes to pushing out performance as an athlete. How, how was that for you? If we could... just um zoom in on on that perspective tough and
2: i've got a little baby girl now isla who's coming up to two and i I often look at her and she's jumping everywhere. She wants to climb on everything. And I'm thinking, gosh, I really want to take her to like a little baby gym. And then they have this other voice that comes in saying, no, (laughs) I do not want that for her. Um, But I I mean, gymnastics is working hard to change. But when I was training, I mean, from the age of 10 onwards, I was weighed constantly at training. A couple of times in a training session even, which just scientifically now, and there's no merit to that kind of behaviour. My coach spoke to my parents about about my diet and, you know, how right. Cakes would be a good idea for dinner because it's very low calories and food is ju- food became just purely about how to be as lean as possible because gymnastics has it, it, you know the two benefits. There's obviously the aesthetic for some reason you know slimmer is is what or was considered better um and also then you can somersault more it's easier to rotate in the air and and all the rest of it so if food became very difficult and and with that then it just became a source of control of like I can't guarantee if I'm going to win a medal but I can guarantee how many calories I had you know had one of those little books yeah, at the age of 12 like counting calories and you can't unlearn that you can't unlearn how many calories are in a piece of bread and Mm -hmm. so on and so learning how to work with that and there was a really really transformational moment for me when I was sort of in my later teens um, around about 18 where i realized that i was constantly avoiding going out for dinner with with friends with school friends and then university friends because i i wasn't able to then know what would be on the menu and how to control that side of things and there was just this moment where i thought gosh you know i would swear but i'd try not to <laughs> like this is not okay i want to live my life more fully i mean food is such a beautiful part of connecting with people and sharing moments and food is food is like so full of pleasure it's not just something to be controlled and counted. And so it's, yeah, it's been a real journey. And I don't, I don't, I mean, not every gymnast walks out with an eating disorder, but I think on the disordered spectrum, I know more that do than don't. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's so difficult for it not to become so connected in with your self-esteem and how you're valued and whether or not you're going to get selected.
1: Yeah. I I, I know this is a very sensitive, topic um so i want to tread carefully with with all the different questions that i ask but but emma you've have your own sort of story and your own journey with regard to um a, a, an obsession or a, a disordered relationship with with eating
0: yeah 100 percent. so the bit of the puzzle that i missed out about the girl who got the job was a beauty editor on a magazine the thing that i stopped myself from saying was i didn't want to be the fattest beauty editor in the room and I was, <laughs> and, and from a very young age, I was very doll-like and I was talking to someone recently and I said it was almost as if I could divide my childhood into before and after fat. So I was quite doll-like until about the age of eight and then suddenly I changed. And it, and it was a very stark lesson from the age of eight that you can't really compute at the time, but you understand that the world treats you very differently based on how you look when you're a cute little kid. The world's your oyster. When you're not a cute little kid, the world is not. And obviously I'm sort of simplifying it for whatever reason, but I had a, a very early onset PCOS. So that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And uh, my symptoms were quite severe and they went undiagnosed until I was 17. So in the interim, around eight, nine years old, my mother took me to the doctor. Emma's was putting on a lot of weight. And I was told I was obviously eating too much and here's a list of diet foods and a little bit like you, Katie, just very different settings, just Emma probably shouldn't eat chocolate, Emma needs to move more. And I really understood the focus of, food's now a bad thing, food's wrong. And that really, I guess, started the first knot into what became a huge, huge tangle in terms of body image. And it was only two years ago, so in 2019, I actually uh, had a breast reduction and it was perfectly, I I was a very good candidate for a breast reduction anyway, but, and I didn't understand this at the time. It wasn't until afterwards, I realized that a lot of the reason why I'd undergone surgery, you know, general anesthetic invasive surgery was because I thought that if I didn't have big boobs, that I would look slimmer. So you can imagine the shock (laughs) when, (laughs) when I didn't have the result that I was expecting. And actually, but it was a very mm. useful thing because I did that thing where I looked in the mirror and just thought, you can't do this. You can't keep doing this. You're 41. Are you really going to be, Are you? is this going to be the one thing in your life you can't get a handle on? Is this going to be your legacy? Emma spent her whole life being unhappy with her weight and never, never got on top of it. So I just had to give myself an extremely tough pef- pep talk and also look at it from a completely different perspective i had over the years been extremely good at dieting and i had been over the years extremely Mm. good at working out with discipline and with consistency and at six o'clock in the morning i would be in the gym and i would be doing my workouts and even the trainers would come over and be like god look at what you've done this is amazing but i could not sustain it and so the thing that i really understood and which is its own journey in itself is it's not actually about the food, it's not about the exercise, it's about what's going on in here. And I had to interrogate that. And that was the hardest piece of the puzzle, but the best work that I've been able to do in terms in terms of just feeling connected to my body and feeling as though I have some sense of confidence and self-esteem that I realized I never had before for
2: me like not to kind of put you on the spot too much but that's why what you do is so beautiful that you might not realize it but what you do for me is you encourage me to be passionate about food to to learn about what's possible and the creativity and that and how to kind of like neutrify your body with it and like there's, there's so much connectedness between what we're all doing without it being sort of on the surface necessarily obvious um sorry i interrupted your flow later.
1: oh no, th- no thank you no no that's very sweet of you i was i was literally just going to bring you in and just say Katie this is um not only not only from you know your personal experience but this is sort of your bread and butter I, I imagine because you're, you're exposed to a lot of people who are having these sorts of thoughts and these thoughts of um uh, feelings around food uh, albeit in a different in a different sort of industry in terms of, of uh, athletes
2: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you, you touched on it at the end there, Emma, you're spot on, that it's, ne- it's never really about the food, it's what the food represents for someone, whether it represents a way to feel a little bit more in control of a world that we're not in control of, um, or whether it represents a way to feel a sense of achievement, because this is something that I can do and I can see a result from it. Um often I, I've I've met a number of athletes that are eating to fill a void because essentially they're trying they're very much trying to um achieve something in sport in order to feel good enough. The amount of Olympic champions, premiership footballers, um CEOs that I've worked with over the years that on paper seem like they've got it all like you know really really impressive they're achieving dreams they're standing on podiums they've got shiny things around their neck and they feel empty from it and they feel like they kind of almost like what was the cost of this journey um was it worth that price and actually I thought when I stood here on top of this podium that I would feel so full of of joy but actually I don't and there's a really um not a very scientific source but one of my favorite sources of sports psychology is you know the cool runnings <laughs> uh, film and there's a quote in that which is if you're not enough without a medal you'll never be enough with a medal and that's sort of like when i heard that i was like i, I could never express that as well that that's at the heart of my work actually i don't do an awful lot about sport specific psychology i do a little bit around you know penalty shootouts or decision making or managing nerves that kind of stuff but really the most powerful work i've come to to have the privilege of being involved in is helping athletes and coaches realize that they are enough as they are you are a human being not a human doing who do you want to be in the world now let's go and pursue something that you want to do for fun not for fear not for fear that you're not good enough, that you need to get this medal in order to be good enough, to be loved or valued. And just that, that kind of like stripping it back to what it is to be a human being has been completely transformational, actually, for me, for for those I've worked with. And that's not what you get taught at, at psychology school, <laughs> kind of, you yeah. know, it's not on the curriculum, it really, really should be. And I want to be a part of changing that in schools. Um, but yeah, it's just that that sort of recognising why you're doing what you're doing and having that be healthy through a sort of a sort of route of love
0: it's ab it's absolutely that and I think someone might listen to me talk and say well what did you do did you just go on a diet but it it was about that different approach so previously the way that I ate it was self-sabotaging and there was no connection between what I'm eating and nurturing or looking after myself. And the same with exercise. It was almost a punishment. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, my motive for doing it was almost like, you're going to, I'm going to punish you until you lose weight. And it was changing the mindset to, I'm going to feed myself in a way that the person, that somebody who really loved me would feed me. And I'm going to exercise mm. in a way that somebody who really wanted me to remain fit and strong and healthy would want to, because there's that great James Altucher quote, nobody nobody wakes up in the morning and wants your success more than you do. Like it has to be you that wants it. So I listen to all these inspirational podcasts and I tap into all this inspirational stuff from James Altucher and RuPaul. But just when it came to how I viewed my body and whether that's because I succumbed to diet culture or not, I wasn't actually at any point, nothing I was doing was about an act of self-care or self-love or Liking myself, it was all about you've got to change. If you, if you, and flipping that vocabulary and sort of, you know, doing a, a, a chart on a piece of paper and going, this is what I'm currently saying. What would be the positive opposite? It was just flipping into that headspace, which obviously doesn't just happen overnight, but that would be my thing it is switching the gears.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, considering the environment that you were working in for a large part of your career in the beauty industry, it just reminds me. I feel like this podcast is turning into quote central here, but you know the the Baz Luhrmann <laughs> song, uh, "Don't read beauty magazines; they only make you feel ugly." That was your constant environment, and probably across your desk, you were seeing the latest diets, latest fans, the the look that everyone should be trying to achieve. And and to to pull on Katie's point, you really have to try and establish the why. Of everything that we do, why are we trying to look a certain way, what is meaning to us, what is success for us, uh, and bringing that out. I mean, what what was that process like for you, Emma, in, in terms of really changing that mindset? Because I imagine, particularly as you're working in the industry at such a, a young and impressionable age, it would have become part of your personality part of the, your fan break
0: oh absolutely and I was already very much I already knew that that the images of women that I was seeing on television they they were things that I aspired to but I knew I knew I didn't look like that so I was already punishing myself for that even if mm. I even if I necessarily knew but yes I remember a few years ago going around to a friend's house and she said oh I'm going to I don't know we'll, should we get a takeaway tonight and I said oh I'm doing this thing and she and she just put her head in her hands and she said Every time you visit, you're doing a new thing and based on something that you're trying for the magazine or that you've heard about or that one of your beauty editor friends is like, can we just have a takeaway and can you just eat it? And can we not take out a food group? And I hadn't really realised until then how indoctrinated I was into all of these things, like one minute you're cutting out carbs, one minute you're trying... Something else. I mean, I can't even list off the amount of things I've tried. So I was very susceptible to it, and I did completely fall for it. But I think the the difference in I read a book called Brain Over Binge, and mm-hmm. it's by an author uh, Catherine Hanson, and that really. I read it at a point the day after I'd looked in the mirror and I had um, said, we're not doing this at 50, Emma. And this is the same woman who had looked in the mirror at 16 in the summer holidays between the fifth form and the sixth form, fifth form being uniform, sixth form being own clothes, and had said, you're Mm. not going to be a fat sixth former, and was. And so I just didn't want to keep having that conversation with myself. Like, really, I didn't. So I read the book Brain Over Binge. A friend had recommended it to me, someone, a really good friend who's recovered, from anorexia and she said i know that you don't have my issues but i think this might help and i was quite cross at the idea that i might have binge eating because even the idea mm. of binging or admitting to a binge was just so shameful i was how could you possibly say that i would do that and I read it in one sitting. So technically I binged it. And it, and I did speak to the psychotherapist Mandy Saligari about that. And she went, let me get this straight. You binge read a book about binge eating. And we had a laugh. But um, it's it's not like it's particularly scientific. It's not even particularly... Well structured or well written, but it's incredibly repetitive. And about two chapters in, I thought this is almost like hypnosis,
2: mm. and
0: it def- And I thought I'm going to go with this, and it was. I genuinely mean this. I read it in what five, six hours with, and I highlighted sections, and I went to bed, and it was as if overnight I had had a software update. And when I woke up the next morning, the way that my fundamentally my behaviour around food was changed forever, not permanently because we can Mm. talk about relapses and setbacks, but it just fundamentally helped me understand that what I was doing was self-sabotaging. And there was this constant conflict where I would, I spent my life talking to my friends saying, does my bum look big? Do I look big in that? Um, Do you think I'm fat? All of of these things, I was a real Debbie Downer to be around. I was constantly looking for reassurance from other people. And that made me realize that this is just something that I had to completely break. That way I was thinking was something that had to be broken because it's unbelievably unhelpful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, I mean, I want to bring you in here because that mindset shift, uh, I'm assuming it it won't happen for a lot of people after reading one book or having some uh, content about how vested you are in that interest. And this is something that it, you do a lot of in, in various guises. How do you try, is, is there a tried and tested process for developing a different mindset um, or is it really, really unique to the individual and and where they're coming from.
2: It's one of the most brilliant things and most annoying things about human (laughs) beings is how individual we all are and and how I, I so wish there was a magic wand. But I mean, it's so amazing to hear that story, Emma, because I imagine there were lots and lots of nudge points that led up to that moment and then the book helped tip it over. Um, there's so much there that you're touching on about, you know, really understanding why, what is sitting behind, what is that? Because every behaviour makes sense in context, like every behaviour, it's kind of almost if you think of it like armour, perhaps, like there would have been some difficulties or challenges in someone's upbringing in their early years, um, whereby they felt overwhelmed by something or they felt they felt they weren't good enough. And so then with not just a, a kind of, it's not a young adult brain we have at the age of 10 or 12. It's an incomplete brain. It's like a car that's got you know eventually it's going to have six gears but right now it's only got three so you can't expect you know, a younger person to really think clearly about the world or themselves, or other people. And yet, by the age of about eight or so, we have actually formed a bit of a map of ourselves, other people, the world. Are we lovable? Are we good? Are we full of potential or not? Um, are the, can other people be trusted or, or not? Are they consistent or not? Depending on what we've experienced from parents and those close to us, early caregivers. And is the world a safe place or not? So we're forming these conclusions that then form a map of the world for us and how we interact with it but we're doing it with an incomplete brain we're doing it with a really emotionally driven brain that is quite egocentric so it takes everything very personally so Simple, simple things like dad is away working a lot, for example, the young incomplete brain may conclude from that, that I'm not that I'm not that special because dad's away a lot. So therefore, I'm not really that special. And then they'll develop sort of like these kind of subconscious rules for living about, right, well, therefore, I need to go out and achieve lots and lots of things in order to be really special. So now you've got the the emergence of a drive but it's being driven by dysfunction. It's being driven by a feeling of, of not being good enough. And then that drive can then go on to, you, know, you can achieve great things with that, but like we've touched on at a great cost as well. So when people are able to unpick what, what is it that happened in, you know, I'm really, although I'm, I'm not a clinically trained psychologist, I've been mentored and supervised you know, for, for over a decade now. And um, so I very much think in that way. I do think that those early life experiences are completely profound for how we then interact with the world. So when you're able to take someone back to that, and see life through the age of Emma as an eight year old, or, you know, whatever was was relevant at that time, you can then go about some very powerful healing of thinking, actually, what was the truth of that? What was the reality of that situation? You change that bottom line about yourself. So if you literally can switch it from, I'm not good enough to that's not even a question like, what is it? Where is the bar? Like, what is the level of being good enough? Just, you are a a human being and that's beautiful and we don't really know what we're doing on this planet but what do you want to do with your life who do you want to be and so when you switch that all of those old rules i need to be excellent i need to be really liked i need to be the the, the thinnest person in the room whatever it might be all of those can drop away in an instant so that kind of uh, kind of approach um, can can create massive change in a short space of time. Um, I'm not really sure I've answered the question. I kind of went. <laughs> no, no,
1: no. <laughs> I, went, that, that, I, I was just gonna uh, bring Emma back there and just ask if that's brought, if that's brought anything up for for you.
0: Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I'm curious because I think the 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 thing with my own particular journey, my own color and shape of what I have experienced is that for, I think for a long time, I was in a place of denial. And even if I, and I wonder if I'd read that book 10 years earlier, whether it would have resonated, whether it was I was in the right emotional and mental headspace, I just spent, I just dropped a lot of money on some cosmetic surgery, didn't get the results I wanted. So I was like, right, I'm going to sort this out. So there were lots of factors at play, like you said, lots of nudge points. But I definitely, I think so for a long time, I used my PCOS as a reason why I was overweight. And I would present that to people very early on in my interactions with them. So that because I, I went through a big period. I don't know if you went through this too, Katie. Of um, I actually didn't want people to see me. And I didn't want them to see what I was physically presenting. So I would try and rush to tell them things about me so that they would cut me some slack and maybe see a uh, see a version of me that I would feel happier for them to see. So there was a lot of presenting and posturing, and, but definitely denial. And I think um, I had, have had this conversation a couple of times with friends who, again, everyone's journey is unique and it has their, its own color and its own shape, but friends who have gone down the body acceptance route. And I stumble with that because I feel strongly that had I done that two years ago, instead of reading that book, that would have been validating a mental illness rather than, um, and I and I feel very happy about the journey that I've gone on and I, I worry about, well, what if I had embraced all of the tenets of body acceptance? Would that have meant that my health was at risk in the long term? There are questions I have and I know that that will be quite upsetting for some people to hear and I don't mean to trigger anybody. These are just the thoughts that I have given my own personal journey and I so I guess what I'm coming back to is this uh, the idea of denial actually about knowing that maybe you have an issue never actually getting on top of it and so finding comfort in denial
2: and I think that's that's right and then just trying to from that denial trying to find some compassion in looking at what what is this behavior doing for me because I was working with a, um, a sort of middle middle age, I guess, um, a, a gentleman a couple of years back, and he very much had a belief that he was not lovable, and as not not consciously, but he was also he was um, unhealthy, like he was not eating any of the kind of nutritious things that Rupee would have us cooking up, you know, and so that but that behaviour basically, if you don't feel that you're lovable, then the pain of rejection is really It really really cuts deep. So then one way to sort of protect yourself in quote marks is to eat an awful lot make yourself considered as by society unattractive and then you can't be rejected because they're not rejecting you for who you are just because of the size you are so that behavior was serving a purpose for him it made sense in the context of his life and once he was able to see the 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 reason why I'm eating so much is to actually make myself you know kind of to confirm the belief I already have our brains like consistency to try and confirm that belief then actually he was able to step back from that behavior and do something very very different and think you know what actually the the original belief was faulty and that can change in an instant but I I mean I guess sort of slightly contradicting myself that instant as you've said Emma has a number of points that lead up to it and suffering you know the the dropping a load of cash on (laughs) suffering can drive that change so (laughs) find the the silver lining
1: absolutely there's a few themes that I think are emerging from this conversation um root cause I think which is highly individualized whether it's something from your immediate environment or childhood environment or cultural, uh, history as well. I think that has a huge into play. And there was, there was one element, um, that you mentioned Emma that I, I want to pick up on, which is the elephant in the room being, you know, what is the appropriate thing to advise people of in consideration of the psychological impact, but also we have to consider the, um, the immediate issue of, if you are overweight and yes we are moving away from bmi but if you are of an unhealthy lifestyle we do need to make steps toward improving that for for your benefit not for society but, but for the individual's benefit so there is a there is a tricky balance to do that and i think no more um treacherous is it to do that on social media as, as i'm finding as i've found over the last couple of years i mean what what how do you, do you feel we can approach those really important conversations in considering in consideration of of how sensitive a topic it is
0: it is a very sensitive and tricky subject and it's in, it's hugely nuanced and i i don't know as if there's a right or wrong answer right now but in mm. terms of being somebody who has gone to the gp previously and said i'm i'm gaining a lot of weight and i'm Really unhappy about it, and being told to move move more and eat less essentially, which mm. is sound scientific advice by the way but it, it it was a blunt instrument in that case, and I think i I really look forward to a time when we When somebody sits in a GP's office and I totally understand the stresses and the lack of resources, so I totally understand that you can't have a perfect session and you can't examine all of this in one sitting. But I do think that just speaking to the person and just understanding their relationship with food, like if if you are gaining weight and you don't want to, or you're at a weight that you're not at and you don't want to be at that weight, which was was my issue for, for a very long time, I was very unhappy with it. Um, so you, just telling me to eat a bit less and go on a diet, all things I've done and succeeded at, but they weren't the answer. So clearly the answer was something else. And so I just hope we get to a point where it's okay to ask people, what's your relationship like with food? How do mm. you interact with food? Do you, there, there are certain behaviours, I'm sure there's a checklist, like for example, have you ever thrown food in the bin and then thought, mm, it's only on the top, it's okay if I go back and nibble the stuff that's not dirty. There's, like, there's a lot of behaviours and I know a lot of people have done that. Uh, but, and there's also the restriction, there's have you, uh, I, I don't want to go down the list of listing them actually, because <laughs> I think I'm giving too much away. But I just think that there are really toxic Behaviors around food that actually evidence the fact that it isn't about dieting and exercise. It's mm. about what are you using food for. I was scared of food. I, I relapsed a little bit at the weekend. In so far as. I spent the whole morning, six hours, just thinking about what I could eat and don't exercise because you're clearly tired because I'd worked out all week and my muscles really hurt. So I thought, I need a rest. Oh, maybe I need to eat, eat something. I really fancy a pizza. And I just had this six hours of just, can I have pizza? Can I do this? Should I get a cider? What if I have Chris? Oh, I really fancy nachos. And that was all that was going on in my head. And I got ready to go out to the supermarket. And thank goodness this happened because of the work that I've done. But as I as i went to leave the flat i just went this is an act of self-harm take your shoes off and i went and sat down with a cup of tea and just thought right this is this is how tenacious and nefarious this illness is because Mm. you have one sign of weakness and it's in so great words
2: by the way Tenacious and nefarious. I'm mm. loving that. Um, but I, it's, I think it, just building on what you said there, Emma, and it's it's back to um, Rupee the point you're making about root cause that that actually, like, let's talk about this because we want to live life fully. We're not talking about this because you mm. need to lose weight to be acceptable. Mm. We're talking about this because we have, as far as we know, we have this one shot at life and. You want to be able to like your body is beautiful vehicle to express yourself, to connect with others, to adventure, to, you know, not everyone needs to climb a mountain. But like, you know, you want to maybe you want to play football with your kids and like what is it you want to be able to express in life? And how do you want to use these moments and you want to sit and feel well within yourself? So it's 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 the the reason why we're talking about this is one of like you're saying is one of love of self, love of life, love of possibility, love of self. Um, and so as opposed to the sort of previous narrative of it's what's acceptable, it's what you need to do mm. in order to be liked or in order to be considered, you know, in control of your life, like none of us are in control. Like, so I think that that for me is sort of at the heart of how we change it. Um, and then also, I mean, I'm, I'm really geeky about this. I just really wish and really what I want to be a part of is at schools that we teach kids how their brains work because you mm. have this unbelievable machine between your ears and most of it has the power to make your life an absolute misery a complete joy bearing in mind whatever circumstances you're in and yet there are no like rules there's no manual like even when I get any phone I don't really read the guidelines anyway no one reads that I mean do they I'd love to know if they do because I don't I (laughs) hear my dad's voice in in my nose saying have you read the instructions like no I'm just trying to you know and that's what we do with life we just sort of try and figure it out as we go and actually once we come to understand how our brains evolved and why they are here and how they're wired and why we have those awkward thoughts or doubting thoughts or that that's a game changer like that's i mean i you know pythagoras's theory i might be useful but let's talk about (laughs) our brains more
1: (laughs) i think we spend a lot of time teaching kids theory when actually we need to be teaching them a mixture of yeah how our brains work logic finances life skills like food and cooking and how to navigate marketing messages as well. That um, There's a whole host of things that I wish were added to the curriculum and I definitely welcome uh, some of the topics that you want to talk about uh, to, to children. And on, on the point about, um, you know, it, it, I, with my GP hat on and the uh, knowledge of how limited we have, uh, how, how limited our time is, we, we have with, with patients, there has to be a balance with education and compassion. And so this compassionate information giving is something that's very hard to work into um, the confines of a, of a normal GP appointment, but it's definitely something that we need to work toward. And and one thing I, I, I want to ask about is um, the other side, which is um, perhaps ignoring the, the bigger issues in basically sacrificing what could be useful for the individual in terms of yes things about moving more and lifestyle and food and how to include more vegetables and all those different things uh, in the sort of fear of triggering a psychological problem and therefore we create another set of rules where we can't talk about how you need to perhaps eat less or smaller portions or change your diet up uh, because we're moving too far the other way. Am I, am I making sense? Does is that? I'm I'm certainly noticing this trend on social media where it's unfashionable to be having a conversation about food.
2: I, I mean, Emma, it's probably a little bit more in in sort of your world than mine. But I just think that the ability to try and I mean. You lose so much context over social media, don't you? Like there's a there's a psychologist called Albert Moravian who did some studies around how, how do we interpret the meaning of what someone says to us. And most of us think like it's all about what you say, the words you use. In in his research, he found that I think I'm gonna get the stats right, but it was something like only seven percent of the meaning of a communication is actually taken through your words. And the rest, 38%, I think, if I can't remember right, came from your tone of voice and 55% from your body language. And oh. yet when you send a put a comment on an Instagram or you put a post out, I mean, maybe you've got a video so you can capture some body language and tone. But the point I I, I just feel about this is it's so difficult to connect genuinely over social media even when we're being as brave as we are today of just being really real with each other and and the moment so we're trying to create those moments and how you do that as a Dr. Rupi I just I I mean my sessions are typically like 90 minutes like you you have like seven minutes don't you I mean it is really really difficult how do we have the genuine conversation so that if I'm going to give you a difficult message about portion size or whatever it is, I mean you probably do need to talk to me about that. That I, I can trust that you're doing it for the right reasons, that you, mm-hmm. you're doing it because you care about me, and that's really hard to to achieve, whether it's in a doctor's surgery or over social media. But if we can talk about the fact that that's hard to achieve, then perhaps we can move towards it. I'm not sure if that made any sense, but <laughs> yeah, no, no,
1: that makes a lot of sense. Emma, do you have thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think
0: I've I think I've noticed what you've noticed as well, which is this thing of. We can't talk about food flat out because that could trigger anybody. Even talking about healthy food, like your bang bang cauliflower, you know I'm a fan. (laughs) (laughs) You can't talk about, you can't necessarily talk about what you do because it might, someone might interpret a message of, but you're shaming people who don't want to eat plant based or or Mm. who don't want to eat for their health. You're shaming somebody who uh, would really like to just eat because they they like the taste of that thing and th- there's this really yes there is an intolerance now towards talking about food generally even if you're trying to put out good healthy information and for crying out loud you're a doctor so that's exactly what you're doing <laughs> but there does seem to be an intolerance towards any of it because it because of who it might upset but i do think that is a social media thing
1: yeah yeah, yeah. no i agree and i i think it it's definitely something that warrants attention because i think traditionally we've thought too much with the authoritarian vibe on like you need to do exactly what i say you need to lose weight this is what you do go and do it you're clearly not taking my advice hence why you're still overweight or you still got these issues with your bloods etc etc and we certainly are hopefully moving away from that but i i fear you know in, in in some cases we need to have a conversation around restriction for for want of a better word but katie there was something that that you mentioned uh, on the webinar that we did about where re- restriction or um guilt and how that spirals into shame and negative self-thought and ruminations that's the issue right there to you know we need some of over here, some restrictions, some guilt, but it's we need to be careful about the the spiraling, and that and that's quite difficult to communicate uh, in social media and uh, and and a time limited appointment.
2: And it's, it's linked to how we relate to our emotions and how we I absolutely love Liz and Molly. I don't know if anyone's seen that on, on, oh, they're amazing. They've got a book called oh, No God. Hard Feelings. Oh, like they, they put out these really great sketches of our emotions at work um, and how actually we need to really embrace our emotions more and be able to talk about it and move on from the narrative that it's weak to talk about your emotions. You know, I've worked in may, men's team sports for over a decade now and big big, massive burly rugby mm. players I might ask them like how are you feeling and they'll say I'm thinking about what I'm going to do in training I'm like that's nice that's a thought how are you feeling um I'm feeling ready to go trying to get to feelings is so critical and then talking about feelings, like let's take guilt for example Yeah, what we talked about before Rupu's guilt can be and and should be viewed as a really healthy emotion it's a really healthy emotion that sends off a bit of an alarm to say do you know what I've done something wrong I've done something against my values um maybe I want to be healthy and I want to love and nurture myself and I've just gone and eaten a ton of chocolate without any mindfulness I didn't even enjoy it I got to another packet and I I thought I had another bit left but I didn't because I wasn't even paying attention in the first place so actually I feel a bit guilty about that and now we've got the risk of like oh it's eating disorder but it's not guilt is a healthy emotion that says I did I did something against my values and that guilt motivates us to do something about it I'm gonna treat myself a bit better I'm gonna Call that friend that I forgot whose birthday it is, whatever it might be. I'm going to pick up the phone to my mum because I've not spoken to her in a while. So guilt can drive us to back to our values, can drive us to do healthy, positive things. And it's, it's an emotion to be listened to and respected. But what happens more often is that guilt, as you said, spirals into shame. The difference is guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. There is something wrong with me. And from there, it's like, where do we go? Where do you go from there now? Like, you you then now spiral down, whereas guilt can project us forward towards positive action. Shame keeps us trapped within ourselves. Now, if there's something wrong with me, I now need to retreat. I I don't want to be seen. And then actually, I'm going to do more of that kind of behaviour. So then when, whether it's food, exercise, whatever it is... Whenever it becomes linked to shame, then it's so difficult to talk about and work with because it's so it feels so deeply personal when the reality is it's it's often helpful not to see it like that. And that links back to
1: exactly. Yeah, This, this really links back to how you want people to understand how our brains work in terms of the neurochemical changes that occur when we perform actions and how we respond to those. And, and one of the things, and obviously this isn't going to happen overnight for people, you know, suddenly guilt is a healthy emotion and then this is gonna spur me on to do great and, and, and amazing things. It takes time, it takes practice. But if we can reframe guilt as a opportun- as an opportunity to improve ourselves, I think that's what we should be striving for rather than restricting ourselves from even thinking about guilt. You know, it's, and, and, and there's a bit of a conundrum there. Yeah,
2: I love the way you frame that. I'm going to need to t- take that now. <laughs> Guilt is an opportunity. We
1: created a new go.
2: Yeah.
1: Perfect. <laughs> yeah. okay. Emma, did you have any thoughts on that? Sorry.
0: Yeah, I was really curious about how you, how, can you diagnose shame? Can you, can you see it? Can you know that you have it? Can you see it in other people? That's what I think confuses me. I I totally think you're 100% Mm. right. But then if shame is the bad thing,
2: how do we expose it so that we can move it towards guilt? It's amazing what you just said there. And it's not, I guess like shame, not necessarily the bad thing, but just unhelpful unhelpful like just you know is it helping you be the person you want to be and live the life you want to live I know because shame makes us make there's an amazing amazing psychologist who I have a massive girl crush on called Brene Brown who you, many of your listeners might know you guys will know um and she obviously she's a, a deep has deep expertise in the psychology of shame and she talks about that for shame to exist it needs silence so it breeds like, in the petri dish of silence of like, because I'm not going to talk about it because I'm ashamed of it. So now I can't tell you that I picked whatever was, you know, the example of like, I picked something out from the bin or whatever it might have been, because I'm ashamed of it because I think there's something wrong with me for doing that. Whereas actually, if you see that as a behaviour, let's think of it in the context, let's think of it as to what that behaviour what purpose is it serving for you? Because at some point in life, that behaviour may have been what got you through a really tough time. Seeking comfort in food or whatever it might be, or whoever it is we're talking to. So when we can just try and depersonalize it somehow, and just think, what what's the what is this behaviour doing for me? So if I, you know, if I don't feel good about myself and I shrink back and I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to go out for dinner with my friends, that's serving a purpose. It's trying to make me feel safe. It's coming at a cost because I'm now losing the opportunity to connect, and that's the thing we now need to talk about. So I, yeah, I mean it. It's just fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I you know, I, I love talking about this because to, to your point, Emma, it's, it's very hard to objectively define a thing for a lot of people, whether they are experiencing shame or another word to describe their feelings. Um, and it's the same way I try and explain to people the, the various levels or the spectrum of low mood and depression. On one hand, you have um, what I describe as subclinical depression where you can still perform your daily activities, but you generally feel low, but not low enough where you fall into the clinical spectrum where you can't get out of bed. You're having ruminations, you're not eating, your sleep is disturbed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think to a degree, we all experience some shame. Um, and we all experience the, the wide uh, um, uh, vernacular of, or the, the wide spectrum of different emotions, but to varying degrees. And um, it, it's, it's, you know, and, and this is to your point, uh, Katie, this is why it's hard to have a discussion about this on social media where most of your message is being miscommunicated.
2: And yeah, it's so important too and there's so, like there's so much amazing stuff out there on social media both as a platform like you know Marcus Rashford's doing around child poverty or you know there's so much beauty and brilliance in social media. We wouldn't be here connected now if it wasn't for social media. so I think it's just let's keep let's keep talking about it and then and then being able to stop and think actually like this you know this sort of mantra that I'm not my thoughts. Because you mm. you you have thoughts in the same way as have I have toes, but I'm not my toes. As so though suddenly, when it comes to our thoughts, we like refuse with them so much. And so, if I'm having thoughts that feel shaming of there's something wrong with me, I shouldn't. know, I don't want anyone to know that about me. Then being able to step back and think, I noticed that I'm having these thoughts, and in that space between me and the thought, is space for me to think differently. Of actually, would I want my friend to feel like that? What would I say to my best mate if they were in that situation and find a bit of a wiser, more compassionate voice? And then we're starting to learn and work with with our thoughts and feelings rather than being driven by them. Because, you know, you talk there about your depression and subclinical and like that, that sort of belief that we should be happy every day is just so, so unhelpful, unhelpful yeah. that our brains yeah. are built to make that actually they're built to be negative negative. Yeah, I love that kind of story. I think it was Russ Harris who talks about that if you imagine back in caveman era, you've got um I hope this isn't too much of a tangent. If you've got two no, like go you got two cave you got two cavemen, Bob and Bill. <laughs> Bob Bob is really positive, he's really happy, he's like, Yeah, this is great. And Bill is just really anxious and worried about everything and thinks the worst case scenario all the time. If there's a rustling in the bush over there, bob is going to be like oh friend let's go and bill's going like oh could be a dangerous predator i'm going to seek cover and hide if it is a predator bob's dead bill survives So negativity and worry and doubt and insecurity is an evolutionary useful trait. And that's how our brains have evolved to actually, it's helpful to think the worst, to worry, to be anxious, to, you know, and all the rest of it. So once we've got that primitive thinking machine and all of us have, we didn't get any choice of that. You had that at birth. (laughs) It's not even anything to do with you. And that part is the one that then runs so many people's lives. And that's the part that then thinks like, I need to look a certain way in order to be accepted because, you know, back in the tribe, if I didn't fit in, I'm probably not going to survive because I can't hunt with people. I'm not going to get protection if we do get attacked. So being in a tribe was really such a a survival requirement. But now, like our tribe is like millions and millions of people that we're now comparing ourselves to. And it just creates so many problems until we start talking about it like this and seeing it for what it is.
1: Absolutely. It's a, it, I had a com- No, that's a great tangent because it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with um, Mo Gauda, who is a person who has had um, depression most of his life. He had to uh, endure the loss of his young son to a freak accident during a, a routine surgery, and um, he describes our brain as uh, running on old software, and we are currently operating old software in with new hardware. Um, and there's a disconnect between that. We have to learn how to navigate our new hardware using old software. And I think those tools about discussing how our brains work, for example, understanding the negativity bias, are super important for for everyone to understand, not just children but also adults. Um, and, and Emma, you, you know, you, you bravely shared about you, you know how you still have relapses and stuff. Um, I, I wonder how how I mean it's really authentic and, and really uh, encouraging that you're able to have. To, to be able to talk about that even, even now, even today. I mean, what, what, what sort of coping mechanisms do you rely on um, uh, to, to get you through?
0: Oh, that's a really great question. I think I just have more trust in myself. So what you were saying, Katie, about uh, the negati- negativity being quite good for us because it's a survival mechanism, I think it's really intoxicating to feel as though you've got the answers so that you don't need to learn anymore i think that's a really intoxicating feeling i think that also speaks to what we were talking about, about social media if a meme sounds great it's really it, it can be quite seductive to think well i'm just going to live by that or somebody says i should live this way i'm just going mm. to do that and actually i think one of the things that i rely on is seeing the part on the bone that was broken becomes the strongest part so even though I was very quickly able to catch what happened at the weekend I, it was a really good signpost essentially, essentially because I was able to go sit down and you know what it's like when you read a book or you learn something for the first time you you retain it for a while and then you might forget bits and you need to go back and revisit so I just saw it as a really good opportunity to pick up that book go to the highlighted sections remind myself of the things that I know to be true also just slow down and also just honestly without sounding like an egomaniac just thank myself for what i've done to this point so far i just go actually do you know what in the grand scheme of things you've done really well so today was a bad day you caught it 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 doesn't need to be a bad day anymore it was just it doesn't even need to have the bad assigned to it it was just an opportunity to to look back and go right you've done this if and I, i think about okay, what if I hadn't read that book and had gone into lockdown? That is something I think about, like, mm. because of my toxic relationship with food, <clears throat> would I have relied on it really heavily? Could, there have, could lockdown have actually been really quite dangerous for me? Mm. Um, so, I'm, so I just was thankful for the fact that, oh, thank goodness you read that book before, you know, six months before lockdown, because you got your head together before you were then presented with something that would have been really challenging, given your previous... Headspace. So I think that is a long-winded way of just saying there aren't any specific coping mechanisms in that I don't go to a particular website or what, what have you. But I think it's just revisiting your progress and acknowledging mm. the progress that you've made, and then then you don't want to then go out and sabotage it because you think you sort of tot it up and it's like counting out your money and putting it all in one place and seeing you go. Actually, there's there's a lot there. I'm gonna I'm gonna not spend that. I'm going to investor. I mean a high yield interest <laughs> account and I'm going to I'm going to um I'm going to capitalise on it and I'm gonna make more of it. So I think that was what that's why I'm not too upset about what happened at the weekend and why I'm happy to talk about it. Because what I also don't want to do is be one of those voices on social media who says I read a book and look, because before I read the book, all you saw of me on social media was from the neck up. And then gradually I started to, you know, the camera started to zoom out and people started asking me, have you had bariatric surgery? What diet are you on? There was a lot of interest and I was ignoring people. And then I decided to address it. And so I was honest with what had happened. But I think it would be really disingenuous of me to present that. I read the book and now look, I've dropped 30 pounds and clearly I'm more confident, not because of my weight loss, but because of the other issues, the mental issues and the fact that I've sort of sorted my head out. So I would be, feel very disingenuous if I didn't say, ah, but it's not linear. And there have been setbacks. I still beat my myself up some days, but I... I'm able to catch it because of the work that I did a couple of years ago. See,
2: I think that's such a beautiful answer, and like you, I almost feel like people like rewind that and listen to that again, because <laughs> like within that you talk, like you talk just to pull out a couple of things that I heard that I. That I thought were brilliant. Is like they're simple, but those are the best things. Is like you, you supposed to slow down because the primitive part of your brain that was trying to hijack you in that moment is really fast. It's sort of five times faster than your logical, who your your real self. You know, once you try and think about prefrontal cortex and all the rest of it, which is where you're thinking. Hang on a minute. Let's look at how far I've come. So in slowing down, sometimes that is that that is all we need to do to then allow the kinder voice to kick in and then you talked about like thankfulness so like once once we're feeling a bit anxious the antidote to anxiety is often gratitude so if we can switch to a point of gratitude of like actually I'm really proud of myself I'm really proud and I'm really thankful that I read that book and I've made this like there's so much wisdom in what you talked about have you heard of you know that Japanese um, phrase kintsugi it's similar to what you're talking about there you know that when you in, in Japanese culture if you break a, a bowl or whatever they then put it oh, back yes. together with gold yeah. and that's that's it so it's through our imperfections that we become valuable and beautiful and and all of that sort of stuff so yeah i love that
1: mm. that's brilliant yeah i mean that that for me um i i know that um that that japanese concept and, and for me it's just so beautiful because it, it, again it's like finding opportunity in what might be a situation that is frustrating um uh embarrassing as well and i think you know, what's really powerful about these conversations is that we've all had personal experience with ill health, whether that be uh, body dysmorphia, mental health problems, physical health problems. And it just reminds me, and I, I feel like we're going to end on this quote now, <laughs> uh, of um, uh, this Rumi quote, which is, the wound is the place where the light enters you. And, and again, it's, it's, it's all about finding opportunity in places where you feel very down, and it, again, like I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that it's easy. It's a process, in the same way my meditation practice that I've been doing for years still feels very frustrating. I don't feel like I'm anywhere near nirvana at all, or you know, becoming a very well-rounded, rational person. But you know, it's the process that you have to fall in love with. And um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've really, really enjoyed all these different concepts. It's, it's incredible.
0: Um, the and another thing, thing, another I'm quote probably. I do want to add is uh, um about uh, 18 months ago, I had this incredible man on the podcast called Jeff Thompson. He's a prolific author, but he's the fact that he didn't sit in front of me as a ball of light was just because he's so enlightened. It's just incredible. <laughs> but we talked about this culture a little bit about social media, about if things trigger you. And I think that if I want to sort of say anything to anybody, because I can't give anybody a magic bullet about how to address their issues with food or how they feel about their body. But something that Jeff said, I think, is so applicable to anything that might be causing you distress, mental, physical, emotional, and that is, if something triggers you, and we are in a culture today where if something triggers you, the response is to say, please don't say that, it triggers me, Mm. and I would like you to stop. So I can't control what other people do, but I can control my response. So he basically said, if something triggers you, run towards it, interrogate it until it stops triggering you. And I feel as though, I feel strongly that that's what I did with the book. It was, I had spent a long time running away from my feelings of angst about my weight and how I looked and how I felt about myself. And the book, And the nudge points of uh, the breast reduction and the other things made me actually step up to it and say outside, basically offer it outside and say, let's go and have this out. And that was where the process was made. What a great analogy. but also
2: I love how like, this is how contagious human beings are. Like I can't remember, I think it was you who started with the quote and now we're all just buzzing (laughs) off quotes. And like, Ruby, you now made me think of the other Rumi quote, which is one of my favourites, which is like something along the lines of, uh, there is out beyond right doing or wrong doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. Which is what I feel like this conversation's been about. It's like no one really no one's got the answer, have they? We're all figuring it out. Let's not label things right or wrong. Let's just chat, let's connect, and let's see what emerges from that. Because human beings such such amazing creatures that so much good stuff can come when we do that. So yeah, I think I we need it. to now ask all the listeners like for their favourite quotes and we're gonna like double our <laughs> quote. Yeah, I know, I <laughs> love it.
1: That's brilliant. <laughs> You can check out all those quotes and more at thedoctorskitchen.com where you'll also be able to sign up for Katie's online course. Plus, check out my guest's bios and much more. Thank you so much for listening this week. I'll see you next time.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen